everybody. Welcome to another episode of Dead and Married. I'm your host, Ashley. And I'm Travis. And today we're going to be talking about 1982's Creep Show. This is our last Easter egg, finally, and we're giving it to our best friend over at Podmortem, Renee Hunter Vasquez. I think this is episode number one for them. I'm not sure. At least a very early episode. I think it's like maybe one of the first five or ten. Yeah. And this is one that it has a had a long standing in my horror-loving film life, however you say that. Um, but I don't think it's one from my childhood. I believe that honor probably goes to part two. I think that was the one I actually watched when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure I saw part two before I saw this one. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did too. And it's not because it's a, the more superior film, but I definitely give it a lot more love than I do this original one simply because I had that nostalgia with that one, I guess. So is this another one you didn't see until you were with me, I guess? So you could almost say that about every movie we cover. Every single one. All of them. <laughs> so uh, why, now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, what kind of, what were your first impressions of really getting to sit down with it this time? Because we actually watched this one multiple times this time. Well, I mean, we'd seen it several times before this, but I think I, yeah, I wasn't paying attention yes. most of the time. Um it's it's good um i think i like the the reach around story better on this one <laughs> than i do on the second one i understood that reference <laughs> i would definitely i would definitely say that not all of the episodes in this are created equal yes yes i would agree um, with that and that, that's true in the second one also maybe one of these days we'll cover it but it's fine there's a couple of really good ones in here and i i had a favorite out of the mm -hmm. out of the bunch but yeah, I mean, overall impression, I, I don't know. I, I kind of dig an anthology. Yeah. Mostly because it doesn't ask me to pay attention for to one thing for really long or keep up with it. Right. <laughs> no. They tend to be short and to the point, and I yeah. like that. If, if you guys are here and you're avid listeners of the show and avid horror lovers, then you already know kind of the history behind this film in that this was made with the inspiration of the old EC comics from way, way, way back in the day. And things from that sprung like the Tales from the Crypt series that we are more familiar with and I would say love a lot more. But it also brought forth this film where where these this brilliant filmmaker and brilliant writer wanted to pay homage to the comic books from their youth. And at the time, I mean, as it is, I guess, with any kid that we, the media that we're taking in, our parents tend to tell us they don't want us listening to this. They don't want us watching this. And comic books of that time were no different. And our wraparound story basically tells that story of, of kind of what that time was like, where you're reading this thing because it's fun, it's scary, and, it, you know, it's a rush. And you have your parents saying, I, I don't want you reading that garbage. You know, I don't want you reading the stuff about monsters and crates and plants and, and all that. And it, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, it was, you know, I don't want you listening to that Marilyn Manson. And, you know, I... I feel like every kid goes through that in some sort of fashion. I think every generation has had that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I no. was not some form of censorship of something. Yeah. For for me I wasn't a horror comic reader. I, I was an X Men girl. No, I wasn't I wasn't so, either. Um so I can't say I necessarily relate to that. And obviously I was raised in horror, so I never, you know, never got in trouble for taking in that medium either. But 
it's still, even if you weren't necessarily subject to that type of treatment with your parents, it still invokes this feeling of familiarity with it, I would say. Well, it makes me think about our current school board wanting to remove books from the school library. No shit, right? Yeah. I'm a tomboy and it's okay to be a tomboy. Well, time to get that book out of the library. Yeah. Fuck those guys. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> maybe but we could be. Maybe I was going to say maybe that's a future pillow talk episode. That yeah, could be. <laughs> but anyway, um, I guess I'm the same way. Like I said, I have a little bit more love for part two. Maybe I mean I know everybody's clutching their pearls right now, um, but this one I there are some, and we'll go through all of them, you know, piece by piece. But I will say there are some that were your standard, you know horror story you know you have all the basic tropes and you know they feel like normal ones and then you have i would say a couple in there that are actual think pieces that after you watch it you think you're seeing one thing but when you stop and marinate on it, you're going wow i never really thought about it that way i think it's just one that would be a think piece. i have a few i have a few actually that i a few there's only five I know. I have a few out of the five. Yeah? That somebody's watching it and they're getting one thing out of it, but they're not necessarily picking up on the nuances in the story. And you and I talked about that a little bit off mic where I'm going, how do you feel about this particular thing that is happening in the story? And you said, well, yeah, you know, this is how I thought of it. And I said, me too. But if you listen to some reviewers, they're not getting that out of there. Well, yeah, I think think there's one in particular where we were listening to a review and I was like, I don't, I think they're reaching. Uh, yeah, I, I, but the one yeah. that I remember you specifically asking me about, I don't know that that was necessarily nuanced or anything like that. It's just, if you're paying attention, that one shifts in tone pretty dramatically. It starts out one way and then you kind of see what's really going on. And you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we get into this? Travis, do you have, do you want to list the cast members? So we'll just hit some of the big ones. Because there's like 40 people in this, and it's broken down uh, across, well, really five episodes. Four episodes in the in the Reach Around story, right? Five episodes in Reach Around. Five? Yeah. Is it five? Yeah, it's five. Shit, which one did I not see? <laughs> there's uh, Father's Day. Yes. There's The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Yes. Uh, there, something to Tide You Over. Yes. The Crate. Oh, okay. And They're Creeping Up on You. Yeah. So. Okay, so there's five in a Reach Around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway. So, Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbeau, Leslie Nielsen, E.G. Marshall, Ed Harris, Ted Danson, Stephen King, and Bingo O'Malley. <laughs> Coolest name ever. I've never heard of them before, but that's a badass name. So <laughs> yeah, I it really is. I also want to point out that Tom Savini has a cameo in this he film. He does. Well, he also did all the makeup effects. Yes. And I don't know if we talked about it, but this is a George Romero, Stephen King piece. Yes. Uh, George yeah, Romero directing, obviously, yeah. and Stephen King. I don't feel like we need to right. lay that out there. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, wow, George Romero wrote this and Stephen King directed it? No way. No. That's backwards. I know. <laughs> no one is going to mix those two up. Hey, we have some new listeners lately that are of the younger fair that may not be privy to these things. Okay, well, let me let me just break it down a little bit. George Romero, one of the best horror directors of all time. Directed Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and the Dead series just keeps going. Uh, the film called Martin... Um, there's, oh, I think, oh my gosh, I feel like there was one with monkeys. Is it Monkey Shines that uh, he did? I or Maybe. I can't remember. There was one with John Leguizamo. <laughs> That's Day of the Dead. Land, Land of the Dead. Yeah. Sorry. 
<laughs> we shouldn't talk about that one. It wasn't that good. It really wasn't. I mean, had had some neat had some neat it did ideas. Have some interesting ideas. But yes. Thanks, Jim. Now. <laughs> So, and then there's Stephen King. Stephen King is the best author of, of our ever. generation. Never, yes. I'm not even going to say the best horror author. He's just the best author ever. If you look Stephen King up on Wikipedia, it just says goat. That's it. That's the whole description. Right. Goat. Goat. Yeah. The goat. Yes. Yeah. Goat, comma, the. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I forget where I, but they, he wrote the screenplay for this in 60 days. But I heard that in reality, it didn't take him that long. And he just sat on it for 60 days so that he could walk in and throw it down on their desk at exactly the time and be like, boom. Well, they had had a meeting before and the, the conversation of them growing up with EC Comics came up. And for whatever reason, they weren't able to work together at the time. But they remembered each other. They were great friends. And so when the opportunity finally presented itself for them to work together, they were like, let's do this. Let's make this movie. So I think it it was a brilliant relationship, and I wish they could have worked together more. Well, I believe they had originally been talking about The Stand, but at the time, right, there yes. wasn't anybody that was going to get behind it and provide the budget to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's, at the end of the day, how it ended up being a TV miniseries. Story of Stephen King's life, am I yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> because no one would, would finance a movie. Right. Because if you've ever seen the book, Books? you could anchor a ship with The Stand. Yeah. Tie a chain on it and throw it overboard, and that ship's going to fucking stop. <laughs> I just... Yeah. It's hefty. And yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I It took two movies to do it, and they left out a lot. Right. So The Stand would be another one. Well, I mean, it took them, what, six months for NBC to do it? Or some shit ABC? like that? ABC? Whoever. <laughs> one of those networks. It took them forever to crank it out, you know, an hour at a time in a miniseries. Anyway, that didn't happen, although I'm really curious to see what a Romero King stand would look like. Might have been really interesting. It. So there's some... I've read the book, and there's some... Some more intense scenes uh -huh. in the book that did not make it, obviously, into the right. TV miniseries. Mm -hmm. I think if it had been a movie, Romero would have absolutely put that shit in there. I think he might have fought harder for it, at the very least. Because yeah. the thing, one of the things that makes Romero such a brilliant director is whether it was intended or not, Romero has always had a film where you can find some social commentary in it, whether that was intended or not, it seems to be just right there in the back of your mind that, you know, thinking about whatever state of that we were in as a country when those films were released. Yeah, but you don't have to do that if it's a King adaptation or a King movie, a book that you're turning into a movie. I mean, look at what's his, oh, that Mike guy, Flanagan. <laughs> yeah. Renee just cringed so hard. You know what? That I've remembered his first name <laughs> is huge growth on my part. And then... Almost immediately remembered his last name. Anyway. I was just saying that Romero might have treated the stand he very have. well. He, he might have done the same thing that Flanagan did. Flanagan's like, this is the best writer of all time, so I'm just going to do the damn thing. Right. I'm I'm going to handle it with the utmost Yeah, you don't care. need to add social commentary. You don't have to change anything. Just do what he wrote. Right. It's like, here are the instructions. Right. Follow them. And then what can we say about Tom Savini that hasn't already been said on this show and elsewhere a million times <laughs> over? Sex machine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like the, That's from Dust Till Dawn. You're just talking, so you, everybody knows that. Oh, my God. Please stop. <laughs> So we're we're we've already talked about one of the greatest directors ever. We've talked about one of the greatest authors ever. Why not have the greatest makeup effects artist ever? It's like the best trifecta for a film I can think of. Is he the best ever for the time period? Yes. He he's very good. 
I would say that you still have your Rob Bottines and your Rick what Bakers. what I'm saying. Like, okay, it's easy to, to pick Stephen King out of a lineup of authors and go, he's the best. Right. But when you come to, like, special effects, there's some really talented artists out there. Yes, but a, I would say there's a fair majority of those guys that were influenced by I Tom Savini. I, I would say that this was, what, 1982? At that time, yeah, he was it. Yeah, especially in horror. Yeah. Yeah, when you when you had a movie that you were going to make and it was horror and you had $7.37 and a chewing gum wrapper and you needed something badass, that's who you called. Right. Cuz exactly. he could make everything out of nothing. So he, re- he really could. It, it's, it never, I mean, he always calls the magic tricks. It never ceases to amaze me what he can do with nothing. Right. You know, and it's just, it's so sad where it's we're like, at I just now. need a condom, some corn syrup, exactly. and red food color. <laughs> exactly. So normally, you know, if we're talking about any other film, we would go, okay, how do you feel about the story? But we've got five stories to go well, through this time. Six if you count the wraparound. Yes. So why don't we begin with that? Why don't we begin with the, with the wraparound? story let's begin with a spoiler warning (laughs) that too (laughs) because we're about to fuck stuff up for somebody that has not seen this yes yes major spoiler warning if you've never seen creep show we would urge you to seek that out before going any further with this episode but if you've already seen creep show let's get into it okay so the wraparound story opens with Joe Hill and Tom Atkins sharing the screen. Joe Hill, for those of you that don't know, is Stephen King's son, who is a very accomplished author in his own right. Yes. Uh, man, I'm not going to say it. He is definitely Stephen King's son in his writing. I'll just put it that way. Uh-huh. Uh, if Stephen King ever retires, I think Joe Hill is the, the heir to that in terms of the quality of writing and... I don't have a lot of experience, but the little experience I do have, he, he, yeah, he's, he's he's highly talented. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. But in this one, he was just a little punk kid reading a was comic he, book. Though, was he a punk kid? He basically told Tom Atkins to fuck himself. Okay, so, but this is still a boy after my own heart. This is true. <laughs> and he called him out on his nudie mags. All right, so... <laughs> At the beginning, you just hear Tom Atkins, um, who is an asshole in this, which is not, he's kind of an ass in some of the other ones, but he's like a badass. Yes. And I was going to say, you watch one, it with your Tom Atkins In this one, he's just kind of an ass, but he's still a drunk, so he's consistent in everything he's in. He's got a beer <laughs> in his hand. I can respect that. But he also has no mustache, and that I cannot. I My think very, very first note of, of the notes that I took was Tom Atkins should never should be never clean shave shaven. his mustache. Yes. I, I wrote that down. I wrote down Tom Atkins is an ass and still a drunk should never shave his mustache. It is a star unto That's itself. It's like Tom Selleck's mustache. It, it needs to be on your face at all times. I don't want his mustache on my face. <laughs> please, <I> might. <laughs> please reword that. You sure? He's like 80 years old now. I don't. I don't care. He, no, he can still call me. Tom Selleck? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. Did you watch Friends? Yeah. He's aging well. (laughs) Anyway. But yeah, so Tom Atkins is drunk in every movie. But in this one, he's getting after him for reading his horror comics. He's also a bad dad in every movie. No. That's why God created dads. (laughs) Fathers, but yeah. Yeah. Think about it. Think about it. Halloween 3, shitty dad. Lethal Weapon, shitty dad. In this one, shitty dad. <laughs> he just wasn't made for parenthood. So he has a thing about being a, an awful father for dating women a lot younger than him and drinking. And womanizing. I was just waiting for him to say Tuesday in this movie, which never happened. I was disappointed. This is true. <laughs> this is true. But anyway, so after, so him and Joe Hill are having this interaction where he's he's arguing with him and, and Hill is like, 
you know, well, I found a, a dirty magazine in your sock drawer. And he's like, oh, and you're a snoop. So very dramatically, he takes the comic book outside, like immediately outside and throws it in the trash can, comes back in. And, and mom is like, well, weren't you a little hard on him? And he was like, no, I, I sorted it out. That's why God made fathers. And then he drink takes a, a drink of his beer. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, okay? Because I think that that is what the parents at the time thought was that these type of comics were pornographic in nature. I never understood that logic. I mean, I guess I can and I can't. But he, I mean, he called him out on his shit saying, how is this any worse than what you're reading? Right. Yeah, it's not worse than your Playboys. That's not what he said, but... Yes, he did. He said it's not like they're any worse than what's in your... No, 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 but he didn't, speci- he didn't specifically call out Playboys. That's that's Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. he did. He apparently had adult magazines. And his argument to that was slap him. Yeah. Because you got a point. Shit. Slap. <laughs> yeah. I gotta shut this kid up. Maybe yeah, fat be- lip will do Before that. my wife finds out anything else about she me. She was standing right behind him. <laughs> yeah. And some of the pages were stuck together. What do you say about Nana? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he, he takes it and he throws it in the garbage. But it made me think about the faculty. There was that, that moment where Elijah Wood's dad found his porn in his room, but he didn't throw it out. He said he was going to throw it out, but when the teachers or cops or whatever showed up, his dad had come back a few minutes later and he still had that porn mag in his hands. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know why it made me, made me think of that. But <laughs> yeah, he wasn't going to gonna let that one get away. Yeah, right. <laughs> But he had the the kid, Billy, he's obviously super, super pissed at this point that he thinks the only act of retribution is for his dad to rot in hell. <laughs> he gets he takes it to 11 real fast, but not immediately because we go to he him sitting in his room. He's upset. He's got like seriously a handprint on his face. Yeah. And the Crypt Keeper, not to be confused necessarily with the the tales from the crypt creep creeper or they call it the I creeper. I mean he's based on Or that. is it the creep? He's the creep. The creep. But I mean it is, is the creep keeper. Window. And I will say that the creep at his window is probably the worst effect in the film. The I think he's creepy. It's a fucking puppet. But I also want to point out that he's in trouble for having this comic book and yet he has a Dracula poster up in his room. So his parents have known that this is an interest. So I didn't understand that disconnect there. I think my question would be, too, like, I mean, obviously he's not old enough for a job. How did he get the comic in the first place? Mm -hmm. I mean, did they give him money to buy it? Did he steal it? Or the Dracula poster. Yeah. I mean, they establish, I think, in part two, maybe, that he has a paper route, but it's definitely not told in this one. No. No. And I didn't take part two as it being related. Is it the same? Yeah, it's probably not canon. It's a different kid. No, it's the same kid. Is it really? Yes, it's just that he's animated in part two. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> so the creep in this one has moving eyeballs and <laughs> like, <laughs> like the mouth just like <laughs> opens a little bit and the eyes turn to one I side. Didn't mean to snort. Like <laughs> <laughs> It's such a bizarre expression. But then it goes animated and I love this animation. Yes. It is like perfect comic book animation for the time. Um, it looks really good. In my head, I was thinking, this looks like some of the old, like heavy metal, right? See, for me, it evokes the car- Scooby-Doo. The cartoons of, well, yeah, the cartoons of the time. And we were watching some review, and apparently this, heavy metal was the first one, so, uh, which is an animated movie, for those of you who don't know about that. but That our younger listeners should not watch. Yeah, no, don't Trust watch me it. on this. No, there's a, there's so much inappropriate content. And so many titties. There's it's a lot of boobs. <laughs> I think 
there's some there might be some peen in there too there probably is <laughs> i watched it there's way something younger for than everyone. i needed to <laughs> something for everyone anyway but i really like the animation style and the way it's shaded and then you fade from that into like a title page which if you pause it they actually wrote like the comic book page and you can kind of read a synopsis of it because the right. creep mm-hmm. does not tell you what it is you mm-hmm. just get like a page out of a comic book that says father's day Right. With sort of the beginning description of what, what it's going to be. And then it fades from the comic into real life. And I, re- I like that. Okay. So do we want to wrap up that story first? Or do we want to talk about the wraparound stories and when we get finished the others? Yeah. I fear we'll deal with the wraparound as it comes. We'll just okay. do it in sequence. Okay. Okay. Sure. So that, that makes the first one Father's Day then. So that- how did you feel about that, our first story? So when I first watched this one, I was... Uh, I don't know. I think I had Tales from the Crypt vibes. And I know that that's where Tales from the Crypt came from, was from stuff like this. But I kind of went into it with, this is, they're all going to be a morality tale of some kind. Right. And so mm-hmm. in my brain, that's what it was. And then I watched this one, and when I actually paid attention to it, I'm like, that's not what this is. So I've got I've got mixed feelings about this. It's not a bad uh, movie or episode by any stretch of the imagination. Um, some of the acting is a little questionable, but is it? it is Sylvia. I guess I didn't. Nothing stuck out to me as far as any bad. She's acting. like Bunny McDougal from Sex in the City. <laughs> She's been Botox so much, nothing on her face moves. <laughs> I don't think they really had Botox back then. They didn't. I'm just saying the way she played that character was a little. I don't know. I don't know. I have it. I have confused feelings about this one because I don't feel like in this one there was a good guy and there wasn't a bad guy. They're all horrible people. I would like to put up the argument that except Ed Harris did nothing wrong. It except you see, you see him dance. There's nothing wrong with that dancing. That I was, was living for that dancing. That scene. was worth dying. No, right there. I disagree. Strongly disagree. And at the end of the day, I feel like um, our well, just I know we're not going to do a whole thing. Aunt Bedelia, Probably Mrs. Danvers didn't do anything wrong either. Nothing, but Aunt Bedelia honestly was the one that actually got abused yes by her father out of this whole thing and she gets killed yeah and i i don't know i just don't feel like the morality tale was there yeah that was that was the thing that stuck out to me is that for it sounds like she had a really shitty life yeah you should probably recap the story okay so that they know what we're actually talking about okay they probably already do but no (laughs) um Wow, I, I'm really hoping this does not take me forever to recap this entire story. But basically, you have this pretty well-to-do waspy family that are celebrating Father's Day. And it sounds like they do the same thing every year where they get together for a nice baked ham dinner. And they drink till their fingers get pickled and just talk about how lovely everything is. And uh, and, and they put each other down and they're just they're just shitty people but they're waiting on what they quote as the patriarch of the family being it'd be a matriarch it would be but they called her the patriarch because the woman obviously has balls um to show up but she always does a thing where she goes to pay respects to her her father who she supposedly murdered because no one ever really outright says that she did it they're saying oh she's the one who's suspected of doing it but this is a crime that was covered up by her and i'm guessing her sister either her sister or the housekeeper i think it i think it was she her said sylvia yes yeah, so and sylvia maybe? is the aunt with these this niece and nephew right. sitting here right. so she apparently helped her cover it up 
but she's sitting there saying, oh, I know she did it. I know she's the one that did this. So, but Bedelia goes out and is basically recounting all of the abuse and trauma she suffered at the hands of her father, which culminated at this of her making this cake for him for Father's Day, and he is sitting, and through flashbacks or cutaways, we see him banging on this chair with his cane, calling her a bitch, screaming for his cake, and when she finally has had enough, she goes and cracks him over the head with a big marble ashtray. That shows up in every episode. That shows up in every episode, yeah, fun the fact. The same ashtray. Um, and but there prior to this he had killed her yes. husband fiance boyfriend whatever he was yes september courtship yes <laughs> but yeah so yes not only has he abused her his entire life he also killed the man that she loved supposedly in an accident so yeah yeah hunting accident yes kind of like when cheney accidentally shoots a lawyer in the face with a shotgun and it's a hunting accident right uh, yeah so again as bedelia is recounting how he treated her what happened and basically you turned me into a monster. You know, you taught us all. She's going through, you know, what he turned her and her sister into. And she's sitting there lamenting all of these facts and takes a moment to talk about or, or to appreciate the stillness for a moment. Suddenly he bursts out of the grave. Well, yeah. So you get some exposition there where they're kind of explaining what all happened. And then she spills her Jim Beam. She's drinking from the bottle. I can respect that. <laughs> I can respect that. But apparently Jim Beam brings him back from the dead because she says, Happy Father's Day, and then the bottle falls over and up he comes. So we don't see how she actually gets killed, but, you know, it's 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 made pretty obvious that he has, in fact, killed her. And so a lot of time passes and everybody starts deciding they have to go investigate, see what happened. And the first one sent off, well, actually, he volunteers as Ed Harris goes off to see what is keeping her. I think he really just went outside to have a smoke. It could be, but you told me to tell the story, so I'm telling the story. <laughs> so... Um, once he, he goes out there, he finds that bottle of Jim Beam laying on the ground. And I don't know why you would just pick up a random I, he bottle did. of alcohol. He just picks it up and drinks out of it. <laughs> and he trips backwards over, the I guess, the hole that he, I don't know, he Nathan crawled hole. out of. It did, like, you only get a shot from, like, the nips up. So yeah. you can't tell what he tripped over. Yeah, so he falls backwards. And then we see that the top of this tombstone. A huge gravestone. Yeah, is starting to move with a life of its own and every time ed harris tries to sit up the gravestone moves with him until it finally you know once he discovers bedelia's body yeah when he he like is grabbing to try to pull himself up and he grabs her arm right um, but when nathan grantham shows up the zombie guy he's not pushing the tombstone he's in front of him so he's like a zombie with telekinesis <laughs> i don't know is it carrie white <laughs> I mean, it's Stephen King after all. So. I could, you know what? It could, he had the shine. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> but everybody back at the, at the manor, the mansion, is fed up. And so Aunt Sylvia goes to find out what the holdup is and notices the lights are off in the kitchen. And then she finds Mrs. Danvers, Danvers's body. And then... <laughs> the the <laughs> look on Miss Danvers' face when she when her like body falls up against the window and she's just like Bleh. yeah, and then Nathan shows up and in a very awesome kill grabs her by the head and twists her head around backwards. That's a really nice kill. It really that's was. a Jason Voorhees style spin it, your head around yes. kill. I, I think I've seen Jason do that before uh, actually. What made me think? No, of it, Michael Myers. I've seen Michael, Michael Myers, Myers do, do that. that. Yeah. 
It was good. It was good. Well done, sir. Yeah, it was good. Well done. (laughs) And then all that's left is the niece and nephew. They go to investigate now. And out comes Nathan with Sylvia's head on a silver platter covered in frosting and candles. It's Father's Day and I got my cake. There you go. I told the story. That's what I say when I, cannot, I see you walking away. There's my cake. I cannot do this four more times. No. So from this point, let's just assume everyone has seen the film and knows the story. Let's hope they have. <laughs> so, Especially this is the, the crate. <laughs> so this is the part that confused and sort of annoyed me about this, this episode. We'll call it an episode. She was the one that was abused, and at the end of the day, the abuser won. Yes. I didn't catch that the first time because I really wasn't watching it. But after watching it and taking notes, I don't like that. So the only thing, if if you were to play devil's advocate, the only thing I can come up with was that she covered the murder up instead of turning herself in. The problem I have with that is that he deserved it. He covered up murdering her husband. Exactly. He abused her, like mental abuse the whole time. Calling her bitch, beating on his rocking chair with his cane. Where's my cake? Yeah. So why does she deserve to get so killed? So why, yeah. Why does he get to come back from the grave and kill her? Yeah. So that's where I had trouble with that that's, one. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like Good it. Good story. Well done. I. It's, it's kind of like when I finished the Dark Tower series. I read the actual ending to the book. Like you read and you get to the end and then Stephen King puts his thing in and he was like, hey, I wrote an ending, but you're not going to like it. So stop reading here. But I put it in anyway, just in case you're, you know a masochist and you want to hurt and i ignored his warning and read it anyway and i hate the ending yeah i think you've told them that story a bunch of times well i just did it one more time (laughs) but that's kind of how it is with this one i feel like maybe it was appropriate it's the right ending but i don't like it i don't like it either in in those terms of the story as far as everything else it's brilliant the score is wonderful the special effects especially nathan's zombie corpse body is just I, I would say that it's iconic to this film. And this this is one of the ones that I think wasn't long enough. I feel like we could have spent a little bit more time here. Um, whereas the crate, which is further down, runs too long. Right. I feel mm-hmm. like they could have taken some time away from it and given some more uh, really to this one and the one we're going to talk about next. I don't know, maybe. I feel like we kind of I'm not learn... talking like 30 minutes. Yeah. Like, give me five more minutes of something. I kind of feel like we learned all we needed to from those characters you knew that they were assholes in the few minutes you get to spend with them i guess i guess what i'm thinking is not necessarily more of that not more exposition more nathan running around like show us show him show us how he killed bedelia you know or the Um, niece and nephew or the niece and nephew show us more of that i don't necessarily need more of us more of them demonstrating why they're all horrible people that deserve to die Mm -hmm. you know show me the creature part I guess. Give me the horror part. That part was good. And and my favorite moment from that segment is when Bedelia has stopped her ranting and she just stops and says, it's so peaceful here. And then you hear that musical sting and see the hand shoot up and then him crawling out. It's so fucking creepy to me. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that don't find that scary at, at all, but I do. Like, I find that to be one of the creepiest scenes in the entire film. Yeah, I know it's good. Like I said. I, it could be it could be three or four minutes longer with more of that, mm-hmm. and and that'd be okay. okay. And and by comparison, the crate could stand to lose three or four minutes and <laughs> still be okay. So second, um, and this is one that I feel like we probably will spend a little bit longer on. So just bear with us. But uh, next is the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. So how did you feel about this story? <sighs> so this is this one is like a it's a twist. 
I guess. So at the beginning of it, you, and you're not going to recap these. So Jordy Verrill finds a meteorite that crashed. He gets the meteor shit on him. He starts <laughs> turning into Swamp Thing. Yes. And everything around the his farm begins to grow. And the rest of it is sort of body horror with uh, some daydreams from him in there. It leads off his comedy a lot. Yes. Like, and then at the very end, it takes this hard left. Yes. And you're like, holy shit. And it's so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill is actually very accurate. And... The end of this movie is hard for us, yes. hard for me to watch. It's hard for me to watch too. Um, uh, for we won't elaborate for obvious reasons, as as most of you well know. Yeah, if you know, you know. If you know, you know. But yeah, I don't know. It was good. I like the comedy parts. Stephen King obviously plays our title character, Jordy Verrill, and he does it so well. He plays it like a cartoon character. Yes. And I, and the score goes it, as such too. It works. Yeah. For him. I, I know that a lot of people say, well, you know, when these people do cameos, they don't they do not do a great job. But he's basically the lead, or he is the lead in this episode. And they, they just kept telling him more and more and more, you know, be be the crazy manor. Yeah, if it, if it weren't for Bingo O'Malley, this would be a one-man show. It really would it be. It would be perfect. And I, really I'd would. still watch it. <coughs> this, this, is, this might be my favorite one out of the five. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just all the him saying weird shit, like meteor shit. Yeah. And Jordy Verrill, you lunkhead, and until you get to the part where he basically he accepts his fate. Mm-hmm. You know, as he progressively he gets worse and worse. After he daydreams about going to the Department of Meteors with Bingo O'Malley, and he he wants two hundred dollars for this meteor, not a penny less. Uh, which he plays every other character in this. He's the head of the meteor department. Mm-hmm. He is Jordy Verrill's doctor. He is Jordy Verrill's dad. Yes. I don't know why he imagines the same person being all of these people, <laughs> but that's how it works in his world. So for me, how how I guess how do you feel? How do I feel about it? Um, I, I think I'm with you in that this is probably my favorite segment of the five. Um, yes, I. It, it can be said that Stephen King really hammed it up. For this episode and this may have been in his era when he was a cokehead and, and it's not a secret he has owned up to that in many an interview but I think his performance in the overacting works because I don't think that it's lost on everybody or on anybody that he's kind of simple he's kind of an idiot and but it's endearing he's not an asshole he's not he hasn't done anything wrong he just as he states a few times throughout the episode has very bad luck and this is another case of him having some very bad luck i feel like if he had played it serious and dark through the whole thing then it would just this whole episode would be a downer like the ending of it is bad enough but i think him playing the comedy end of it yes all the way until that part sort of i don't know it's hard to describe yeah because this is one that we quote a lot it would have just been fucking depressing for him to have played this dark the whole time yeah like it would not be enjoyable at all if he had if he'd done it straight and but it's 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 like you said it's it's almost like a twist because the way they're setting it up again with it being cartoonish and comical and you feel like you're going to get some kind of silly story it's setting you up for that but when you get to kind of i guess the middle when he's made that realization he, he's seeing his father this is where he decides whether or not he's going to get into the bathtub right because he's itching lordy don't it itch um, glory. glory glory don't it itch <laughs> yeah <laughs> um 
and might I just say that water did look incredibly enticing. It looked nice. Like it, it made was me all wanna, sparkling and wanted me to go take a bath. It just looks so clean. <laughs> but that moment where he's talking to his father, he says, I'm a goner already, aren't I, Daddy? And he says, I, I got the meteor on me and I'm gone. And that's the moment where it takes that hard left turn where you're like, this stopped being funny. It's the point where he realized that as soon as he touched that, he was going to die. And again, you talking about the title being apt, we're basically watching him dying the entire time from the moment he touches it. And when you think of it in those terms, it's extremely fucked up. Yeah, it's it's it, the moment of realization while he's having that imaginary conversation with his dad. Right. Where you know he understands what's about to happen. Right. And then he gets in the tub anyway. Yeah. So there, there's a million things that you can laugh at. You know, him, you know, meteor shit, obviously. And I, one of my favorite things that I like to run around the house saying is, This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Verrill. That's like my funny, my favorite thing ever. And you're going through there and you're giggling and you're saying all the things. And, and, you know, he's going, when he's about to get in the tub, you still have one more second of, oh, no, not there. And you're still kind of, uh, right. you know. So I appreciate that they did that. Like, I mean, somebody might say that that's, that's cruel and unusual punishment to get such a gut punch like that with a character that is so so endearing and you you can't help but want to root for him you know that he somehow makes it out of this mess yeah but the very end of the movie is not better like after that when he wakes up he's basically a bush yes and you see him sitting in the corner grabbing a shotgun and the whole the whole episode he's been talking about the bad Veril luck yes and as he's putting the shotgun to his head he's saying please god just this one yeah, let let my luck be good just this just one. this once. Yeah, and that's oh my god, I can't even can't even tell you yeah. how fucking sad that is. But overall, I would still say it's such a good story. Like I said, it it is my favorite one, and that actually comes directly from Stephen King. It was based on his short story Weeds, so that is pretty typical for Stephen King to hold your hand and you're feeling very comfortable, and then him all of a sudden pull the wool out from under you and or. Pull the wool out. Pull the rug out from under you and you'd be sitting there like you just got told there was no Santa Claus. You know, it, it's 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 really, that's really like when he up. killed Jake and the gunslinger. Yeah. And you're like, you motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what makes it to me a more compelling story than maybe some of the rest of them. He, he has a talent for getting you very engaged with the character, even characters that you wouldn't necessarily expect to engage with, like Jordy Verrill. Right. Um, where he is. He's he's a Looney Tune character. Yes. Almost. I mean, his facial expressions, his mannerisms, you know, there's little, I don't know if this was done on purpose, but one of my favorite uh, scenes in this story is that he goes outside just to look outside and you can hear the dialogue going on from the film that he's watching. And this is a bit that I like to see pop up in every movie. We talked about it in um, Dead Alive where there's a radio show going and what's going on with the actors is going in tandem with what's going on the broadcast and to me the scene is the same way where he's watching this film it's like a, a grandmother and daughter or mother and daughter in a boat and she's talking about how hard they had it moving to this country or whatever they were doing and she says can you understand that and he's like oh no 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 yeah. I, I don't know why but it, it cracks me up every time i see it i don't know if they did it intentionally but it well makes me there's laugh. one that they did do intentionally where the, it's like the weather report and but you're looking at outside and i think yeah. it's after he ends it yes and you can see that this stuff has spread and it's growing like these neon green 
plant, plant life. Uh-huh. Some of it kind of looks like weed. Snoop's dream. Yes. <laughs> All over the place. But you can hear the weather report going in the background and talking about uh, a lot of rain. Things should be greening up soon. Yes. And you're looking at like his whole farm is this glow in the dark ninja turtle ooze green. Yeah. So not only did we end it in this very bleak note, it also leaves us with this ominous thing. That yeah. It, it's bleak for that whole area, not just for him. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, again, I don't, I don't, there are some things I just don't know. Okay. I don't know if this was intentional, but I see color out of space all over this, which yeah. is, I um, think we, we agreed on that when we were watching it. Yeah. This, there's something very Lovecraft about. Yes. And, and if you've ever read or watched the film color, a color out of space, then, you know, it's essentially the same thing that happens. This meteor crashes down and all this bizarre wildlife and shit starts to spread throughout this, this little town and starts mutating the things around it. So if you've never seen that movie with Nicolas Cage, holy shit, get on that. That movie's fucked up. Because <laughs> Nicolas Cage. Well, it's like the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill and the thing had a baby. <laughs> it's really fucked up. It is. It's, it's a fucked up movie. <laughs> yeah. So moving on to our third story, something to tide you over. So this episode stars the amazing, always amazing, Leslie Nielsen and, and Ted Danson's forehead. Pour me another fucking drink, dancing. <laughs> he can bench press three hundred pounds. <laughs> you better take your foot out of the door. But he can't dig himself out of the sand. <laughs> <laughs> and there's what's his name, Robert Vickers, in this the character that Nielsen plays. What you gonna call him, Leslie Nielsen? And uh, his Richard. wife, his name's Richard, 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 and his wife. But you don't you see her on the TV, but not yeah all we she's know not is really a part of it it's really something just these, very nasty is gonna happen to her. right it's really just these two guys and so i guess sort of the quick synopsis is um ted danson has been having an affair with leslie nielsen's wife leslie nielsen shows up at the house and wants him to take a ride he takes him out to his beach house buries him up to the neck in the sand uh puts tv on there so he can watch the the, the wife the woman that he's been having an affair with uh basically slowly drowned as the tide comes in and then he drowns as the tide comes in so, how did you feel about this one? So, this was one that we were talking about at the beginning and off mic that we felt like there was more to it than your standard reviewer was bringing up. Because everybody was like, well, they, they cheated. They deserved it. And look. And that's what I got the first time I halfway watched it. Travis and I, we have our own feelings on the subject. Whereas I tend to be a little more lenient and forgiving on the subject, Travis is very black and white on the subject. But so he and I will agree to disagree on that front. But do I, for one, think that the punishment fit the crime? No, not not even close to being a fitting ah, punishment for, for these who? people punishment fit the crime for for who? ted danson and the wife there you go. i do not think what was done to them like dude be mad at her say horrible shit about her through town get whatever in the divorce but do you really need to torture them over it no i don't think so you're a rich guy i'm sure you'll find somebody else <laughs> You know, um, but no, we were talking about how people think that he was justified in his action. And I don't think that he was because of the nuances, the little subtle hints that we get that this marriage between Leslie Nielsen and his wife was not a good one. 
And I don't mean that in the sense of she wasn't satisfied, so she went elsewhere. I get the feeling that this woman was probably abused at some point. And, you know, a lot of people's answer was, well, leave before you cheat. I don't know that she had that option is kind of what I got from this. So do you care to elaborate on that anymore? So, all right. So when Nielsen shows up at Danson's house... And he's doing this weird thing where he's like looking at his electronics equipment, like his TV and his VCR. So VCRs play movies on tape. (laughs) For our younger listeners. (laughs) In a rectangular plastic box, for those of you that don't know. And you must be kind and fucking rewind or you will get a service charge. Anyway, um, until he starts talking about taking care of his equipment. And then Danson is obviously, uh, he's on edge, right? Because this dude just shows up. And that's when Nielsen tells him something horrible is going to happen to her. And he's like, why? You don't love her anyway. And he said, but she's mine. So originally I had thought that, well, I mean, you know, they were having an affair. The dude's pissed. They, you know, okay, let him be pissed and do what he's going to do. But when I watched it and paid attention because she's mine. So he's talking about her like she's property. Yes. Not a person. I, I don't think he could care less that she was cheating. It's just that someone else was touching something that he considered his property. Yes. And... That's where I have a problem. And that's where it kind of like, okay, okay, started thinking about it a little more. Um, and this one kind of ties back to what I, my feelings on the first one, right? So he gets him out there and it's torture and he enjoys it. Yes. And he enjoys watching his wife die. Yes. And he enjoys watching the agony that he's putting Danson through as Danson watches his lover die. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's kicking back in his robe and having a drink. Right. Which means he never cared about her to begin with, which makes his first statement true because she's mine. He didn't care about her. She was just his property. Yes. And this was. Whereas Ted Danson obviously cares because he's willing to get in a psychopath's vehicle and goes, go God knows where and have God knows what done to him, which shows he cared about her an immense lot more than her own husband. Right. Right. Um, But then, so they both die. And of course. Was it a day later? That night? It, it's I, an indeterminate amount of time. They come back. Yes. And they catch Leslie Nielsen. Yes. And then they bury him. And he's lost it. And he's like, I can hold my breath for a long time. And then it doesn't actually show him die. Right. You just, um, it's implied. Yeah. That he doesn't survive it. But this kind of goes back to the first one where on the on my initial watch, I guess, I thought they were the villains of a sort. And he's like an angry, vengeful husband. But on this time, going through and watching it and paying attention, he was the bad guy the whole time. Yes. So two, depending on how you look at it, innocent people um, were murdered by him and then they come back and get him. Yes. So <clears throat> it feels like maybe justice was done against him at the end, but it was never done for those two. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, con- again, it's supposed to be like, well, it's a morality story. Well, if it was a morality story, they wouldn't have died. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know. It's really good, and I really enjoyed uh, Nielsen in this part. I yes. think that all my real exposure to him was in, like, was an Airplane and uh, The Naked Gun. Mm-hmm. And he does comedy so well. I mean, he's an amazing comedic actor. And I never really realized how much of a, I guess, a dramatic actor he could be, which I think he got his start in Westerns uh, before he kind of moved into that realm. But this showed, I mean, he could have been a Bond villain in this. He's so scary. He really is terrifying. He's a very intelligent uh, antagonist. Yeah. And it just goes to prove his range 
as an actor. But during filming, he had a fart machine. He did. That he played before every scene to make people laugh and then fuck their lines up. And we we talked about it off mic that you can see kind of what was to become of his career because he does have those moments of levity in this segment. And yes, it's dark humor, but it's still humor. And so you could... I don't know. I just, I, I was so impressed with his performance on here because yes, if, if we go back to the episode we did on prom night, it was still a dramatic or, a, you know, it was still a serious role, but it didn't, he didn't really have a lot to do in that film besides being a grieving father. Yeah, it was a pretty sm- small role. Yeah. And in this one, even though the segment is as short as it is, you still got to see this wide array of his ability. And it was, it was it was like watching a master at work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, this is going to sound really corny. I don't mean for it to. Getting to see his performance in this segment, I feel like, is a privilege. Yeah. It makes me want to find other non-comedy films that he was in. Right. Um, I would say he's an underrated actor, but I don't feel like he is an underrated actor by everyone. I think he was just underrated by me. Mm-hmm. Because just the sort of slapstick numbskull well, comedy it was, it was kind of like is the only thing I knew him for. Another anthology that we've talked about on this show. This is going like thinking about David Allen Greer playing that character of Carl and Tales from the Hood, where you have this com- this actor that you know for their comedic Absolutely. characters, and then they just on a dime can turn it into something so dark and so terrifying that you're like, holy shit! I really did not give this actor the credit that they were due. I think that in both of these cases, it's almost scarier because it's so completely unexpected. Yes, it's so different from the sort of the the pigeonhole that you've put them in yeah or or the corner that you've put them in that this is this is who they are and this is what they do and then they do something different it's not that they didn't have the range you just it's so unexpected yeah that when it comes out you're like oh shit yeah but yeah i agree uh in in tales from the hood that his performance was just amazing and this one was too i would have liked to have seen nielsen in uh he would have made a great i can't believe i'm gonna say this a hitchcock type villain like a psychological thriller with him as the antagonist. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see that. But this is probably, if I had to rank them, I would say this is probably my second favorite segment. Just because not only, you know, the things that we've already discussed, but this one is the one that makes me the most tense out of any segment in this film. From the moment that he goes back to comfort point or comfort station, whatever he calls his his house, um, you know something bad's going to happen. You're just waiting for the when is it going to happen. And so I'm sitting there this entire time just tense and sick feeling my butt's puckered and I'm I remember like this is one of those films I can remember the first time I watched it in that segment just feeling this overwhelming sense of dread because you didn't know what was going to come back if it was going to be them come back you just knew something bad was going to happen and so that entire time from him taking a shower and he keeps talking to himself ah tide washed him out he's he's gone he's a goner you know he's scared you can see that he's scared even though he's trying to be cool about it it clearly has made him uneasy that the body's not there yes yeah so there's that build up and that build up and that build up and then when he finally opens the door and there's the seaweed riddled couple you know (laughs) the star-crossed lovers that are coming back to exact their revenge 
and this the musical sting that happens there um the look of just shock on his face when he sees them the makeup effects done to both of the actors holy shit like it's it's such a great a great moment cinematically for me that yeah it's I can't call it my favorite, but it's right up there in, in terms of, you know, how I feel about yeah, it. Yeah, this is easily my number two. Yeah, I, I would say so, too. Um, so, yeah, it's it's terrific. Uh, so I was just looking and just this unrelated. His acting career began in 1950. Yeah. So he began acting. I think he was in the original thing from another world. He was. Yeah. And Forbidden Planet. Yeah. His his acting career began before my mother was born. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was born in 1926 and passed in 2010. Yeah. So, amazing career. Yeah. Amazing career. Absolutely. But moving on to... I have some complicated feelings on the crate. I don't. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so, I'm I'm not... Uh, Travis is being much more kind than I am. I'm not going to give a synopsis. Everybody knows that there's a crate that's locked up in this university. This guy has a shitty-ass wife, and he has the brilliant idea to feed the lady to the monster in the crate my problem with this one is kind of where it takes place in, in the film because you just had again this this sucker punch with something to tide you over and it feels like the crate almost brings this film to a screeching halt because it's kind of boring and it's the longest installment. Right. I mean, it occupies, what is this, like an hour and a half runtime, something like that. And this occupies like 35 minutes of it or something. I thought it was 45. Maybe it's, it's 45 minutes of it. So it's just so long. Uh-huh. And it, it's disproportionate to everything else. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a two hour, two hour runtime. And yeah, like 45 minutes of it is this one. Yes. And it's just not that good. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's where that's where my feelings are complicated because I do like this story. I think this segment is great. This is another one that that I quote endlessly, but where it, it just feels like the the pacing is off. It feels like this weird tonal shift has happened where you're just oh, I'm so pumped up from everything that I've, that I've watched so far, and then this one is just it takes so long to get to the point that it's trying to make. There's too much foreplay. Yes. So like you spend what 10 minutes probably at the party at the beginning and it's just to establish that one of, the, one of the professors <laughs> is uh, a womanizer that'll sleep with any co-ed yes and yeah the other guy uh, hal holbrook's character is just a sort doormat. of just sort of a waste i mean he his wife is at adrian barbeau is absolutely horrible to him in public and he just lets it happen he yeah he's a doormat and the thing is, it's not even just to Billy. It's She's to Dexter, done. too. Yeah. Because Dexter, like you said, he his his wife has passed away. And since his wife has passed away, yes, now he is sleeping with all the co-eds. And he's being this very charming, you know, I'll call you later. We'll talk about yeah, it. Yeah, but you know? he's like 30 or 40 years older than these women that he's right. sleeping it's, with. Right. It's gross. It's it's honestly, it's very gross. And how Holbrook's character is just this very meek dolt of a guy. He just, he's the, like... The way he plays that character, honestly, you expect it... You would expect the roles to be reversed. We have right. a really domineering man or husband, and uh -huh. the wife is that way. Right. You Okay. Um, Tales from the Crypt, the one where the woman uh, taxidermies her husband. Yes. You expect that. Yeah, Where right. the guy's just a fucking asshole. Mm -hmm. So flip that, and that's what you get. And, and to her credit, Adrian Barbeau does fucking work in that part. 
She is brilliant, and I love her. From what I understand, that is exactly the opposite of her real personality. Yes. And you never see her act like this, I don't think, in anything else. Yes. She's so fucking abrasive in this. Because for, for any guy... I know this to be true. She's usually looked looked at as, you know, the bombshell in, in these horror movies um, because she's uh, endowed. But she also, you know, she kind of played these sex pot roles in like The Fog where she, you know, she had that very smooth, smoky voice over the radio. And, and you know, for that reason, a lot of guys in the horror community think she's very sexy. So it was just such a shock to see her portray somebody like this but she did it so fucking well she she is attractive she's not don't hurt men's feelings now so <laughs> she's an attractive woman but i think i enjoyed more seeing her play against type mm-hmm. i think that's that was her performance as this character got me more than anything yeah. else and, and uh, it, at the time she was married to john carpenter yes but it clearly um Everyone else enjoyed this performance too because a lot of this film feels like it. Can, it they just keep it going just so you can have more of her belittling everyone around her and it's, being drunk. It's almost comical. Her like, like no nobody. You think that nobody can possibly be that fucking mean. It, it feels like the old rope a dope, the bait and switch. You know, you want her to die so fucking badly that it's telegraphed. Sadly, you know something bad's going to happen to her because they overdo it with how awful she is. Yes. It, yeah, they overplay that hand I, quite I a bit. I really think so. She's almost a caricature of, like, yes. Jersey housewives or something. You know what I mean? Like, she's she's almost a, a cartoon character in her own right, the mm-hmm. way she plays that. But, yeah, they got really heavy-handed with how much time they gave her on screen for that. Not because she did a poor job, but it's like they really wanted to rub your face in how awful she was. Right. Uh, but, anyway, so the guy finds the crate. It eats the maintenance man. And then he goes and finds someone to look at it, and it eats him too, so he goes to Hal Holbrook. And Hal <laughs> okay. Holbrook's like, I know somebody we can feed this. Okay, I have to time out and talk about a couple of things here. Because, um, and, and I did want to say that there there is a character arc for Hal Holbrook's character, I would say. Because, like we were talking about with him being very timid and stuff, he's begging for Dexter to, you know, bros before hoes, please play a game of chess with me tonight. So he's like, all right, I'll put off my date and go play chess with you or whatever. But the maintenance man calls Dexter and says, hey, we found this crate under the stairs. And, you know, it says it's from uh, this Julia Carpenter exposition or expedition from i forget what year it like is. 1890 very very old so it's, been, it's been there for like 114 years or yeah. something like could that could there be something valuable in here and dexter's like huh it's you know it's probably old national geographics probably nothing important but i'll well, come down there and have a look he anyway. says it's an old crate and he's up for it until he talks about the expedition in the year yes and then he's like all interested he's like getting laid can wait Wealth is more important. Right. So he goes down there to check it out. And he and the poor maintenance guy, and I felt so fucking bad. And don't, don't give me a bad look or look at me horrible. He reminds me of your dad. No, I, I can see that. Um, And this was the same line of work his dad he's, was in. He's just a nice guy trying to help. Yes. And, and you know, he lost his quarter. He's like, I wouldn't have even found the crate, but, I'll, but my quarter rolled out. And it was my last one for the machine. Good good guy just trying to help and but his greed kind of gets in the way where ooh shiny which is another thing your dad <laughs> would do he was like an ostrich if he saw something <laughs> shiny he was gonna get it yeah so they pop open the top of this crate and dexter's telling him hey you know don't don't be so hasty and just 
jump into this thing, but he says, look, it's rubies, and goes to stick his hand in immediately, thus causing his demise. And a problem that I have here is that for the size of the maintenance guy, because yes, he is small, but the crate was a lot smaller than that guy. How is it? What size is this fucking animal? So... (laughs) It doesn't seem proportionate. All right. So for a movie, for an episode, we weren't going to give a synopsis on now that we've given it. (laughs) I'm sorry. Let's get to the creature creation because this thing looks like it's about the size of a baboon. Yeah. But it can eat three whole people. Yeah. And like not even it left a shoe behind and that was it. Yeah. How? Where did it put them? Like, did it eat them and immediately shit them out or something? Where's the poo? How does it hold three people? (laughs) So I thought the creature creation wasn't horrible oh no it's it looks great to me it's vaguely rawhead rex no vaguely. no um, it's not anywhere near that bad but we didn't get enough of the creature in this one i think i think it could have been made a lot more interesting if we'd seen more of the creature out running around but like you never see it walk because in some scenes you can tell that it doesn't actually have legs so i wondered if since it's you know found in antarctica i'm like is this supposed to be an abominable snowman okay let's just nix that one right now <laughs> it's supernatural because it survived a hundred and some odd years in a crate under the stairs without eating or drinking don't abominable snowmen do that no they eat tourists <laughs> This is primary prey animals, tourists. And yellow snow. Yes. As we saw in Monsters, Inc. Yes. Yeah. I just thought that whole thing was a little weird. I'm like, how is how is it able to get this full-size man into this little crate? How did it survive for all those years in the crate? How did they catch it in the first place? Right. So I feel like it's a supernatural creature, and we don't get enough explanation right. for it necessarily. And I don't need him to hold my hand and be like, well, it's genus such and such. But give me something more than that. Yeah, I don't know. There's there's, there's like, t- more time spent on things we don't need time spent on and not enough time spent on the things we want more time like spent on. We, sp- we spend too much time with Adrian Barbeau telling her husband he's a bitch. And then we not spend too much time with Hal Holbrook whining about how he's a bitch. <laughs> and not enough time with the creature and, and all of that. Yeah. So the next thing I was going to say, my fav- one of my favorite seg- uh, scenes in this segment is Dexter cracks as soon as the maintenance guy's eaten. And so the student who's burning the candle at both ends comes, comes in from uh, getting, getting dinner or whatever. He's coming in with his dinner and Dexter stops him in the hallway and, you, and is just babbling hysterically, unintelligibly. And it cracks me up every fucking time. <laughs> okay, but I like I like this uh, this grad student's reaction. He's clearly patronizing Dexter, yes. and he's like, "I'll go check it out." <laughs> he's almost like Stu in the first Scream movie. I'll be back. Yeah, and and yeah, so he eats two whole ass people in like a thirty minute span. Yeah, and that, I was gonna say Stu because you just compared him to Stu, but the the grad student guy, he gets a chunk like bitten out of the side of his face and it looks terrific i mean i i think it's a dummy at least for one or two shots of it but it still looks really great yeah it still looks good um but that's another thing is that with the maintenance man it like clearly the size of the animal and the size of the crate the animal occupied the entire interior space of this crate mm-hmm. It pulled the maintenance man in there with him. Yes. So is it the fucking TARDIS? It's bigger on the inside? I don't know. (laughs) And it pulled the grad student in there too. So now there's three of them inside this crate. Yeah. Or just one creature in a huge pile of shit. Yeah, that's what I was saying. 
where is this Jeff Goldblum big pile of shit at? There should be a Triceratops size pile somewhere. <laughs> you would think. Or, you know, it's got like the giant stomach. There's, I don't know, there was a, a show we watched and it was like something neat. Anyway, anyway, there should be a giant distended belly on this animal. Uh-huh. And there's not. And it, it, clear, it does it really fast. So I guess it's like a snake and it can just unhinge its jaw and swallow them whole. Mm-hmm. But, but anyway. going back to complicated feelings... I'm not really fond of the pretenses that Hal Holbrook's character leads Billy into. Like, I don't think that that's entirely fair to Dexter. Because, yes, yes, Dexter, what he's doing with co-eds is absolutely disgusting. But Hal Holbrook fakes an assault to get Billy over there because Billy is the town gossip. She wants, she's in everybody's business and that's how he hooks her in. Oh, Dexter's done this horrible thing to this girl and now she's up under the stairs crying and she won't come out. And, you know, he's, he's alluding to like either she was assaulted or she was beaten up or, or even dead. You don't know how bad it is. This is where they ruin the movie or this is where they ruin the episode this part right here so you've got this guy who is scared to death of his wife won't tell her no he jumps every time she says boo right mm-hmm. and all of a sudden he's going to lie to her and plot her death really it's, i don't i don't think so it's a character arc but it's it t- it's, it's too quick it's to a, get there. it's like a 90 degree turn yes he goes immediately from a doormat to a criminal mastermind and i right. don't buy it it's too much too fast they don't have enough time to do it unfortunately they don't, they don't. Um, like if this movie, if it had been a longer thing and they'd spread this thing out over several days or weeks or whatever, where you can kind of see an evolution there, mm-hmm. but it's literally like one night, like two hours ago, they were at a party and she's telling everybody how small his dick is. And <laughs> now he's plotting her death. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't yeah. think so. So I, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of that setup to, to get her there. Um, but I do think it's hilarious that. Because she is portrayed as a lush through this entire segment. She's drink. She's like throwing her drink around at the party. She's the Dr. Chalice of this movie. <laughs> but she has, she's pouring herself a glass of milk with alcohol in it. I don't know what kind of alcohol it was. But she's like taking that to go driving to the school or walking at the very least to go find out what's happened. She's got a drink in hand all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when he thinks that you know he he's he's enter he's having his big moment he's gonna feed her this creature the creature can't get it up all of a sudden doesn't come out immediately you know when he thinks that he should and so billy's like understandably like what the fuck is going on and you know because he's grabbed her by the shoulders and he's tossing her around like a rag doll and he was beating her up against that crate trying to get the thing to come out. Yeah. And then once nothing happens and she kind of snaps out of it, then she just berates him for all that she's fucking worth. Like, you can't get it up. You can't make any money. You can't, you know, she's just Oh, she's really, leaned up against that crate like a boss giving him the business. She really is. And that's why I said I love her character it's, so much. It's pretty good right there. But then the creature's like, all right, I can't stand this bitch. I, I'm sorry, but I, I love her telling him that she's going to wear his balls as earrings. I'm like, you go, sis. Get him. No, she's a terrible person, though. She really is. She's a terrible person. You just don't, especially in that time, you didn't see a lot of female characters. You don't. Really, really owning up but like that. In that moment. Owning it, I mean. <laughs> in that moment, she's a boss because he really was just trying to kill her. <laughs> yes. And got caught. Yeah. And she's like, motherfucker. <laughs> Your dick don't work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, I mean, he kind of deserves it right there. He did it up until that moment. And then it's like, dude, you just assaulted her and tried to feed her to a mystical Yeti creature man. And yeah. that So you kind of earned this. And the other thing is, is that he's trying to so desperately to have his little moment too. I'm going to get my last word. So much so that he says the same line two times because whenever he's shaking her, he's like, just tell it to call you Billy. And then nothing happens. But when the creature finally does come out and eat her, he's like, just tell it to call you Billy. I'm like, he really, really wanted that last line. Well, but that's what she had been telling everyone. (laughs) Yes. Throughout the first part of this episode was everybody calls me Billy. Oh, just call me Billy. Everyone does. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. The monster was like, oh my God, enough of this bitch. I'm going to fucking eat her. I'm going to eat her just to shut her up. I'm not even hungry right now. (laughs) It's like getting down to like the last few chicken nuggets from McDonald's. You're like, I'm not hungry right now, but I'm not leaving these. (laughs) Exactly. I'm not leaving these. No nugget left behind. So then... I'm a fat kid. (laughs) So then... uh, (laughs) Uh, Hal Holbrook, you know, he's got to cover up the crime scene. And he and he's t- telling Dexter after the fact that it was really the perfect setup because all the students are gone for the summer. Classes don't resume for a couple of weeks. There's nobody there. It's the perfect crime. And he loads the thing back up in his car, which I don't even know how he managed that. And Yeah, it had a creature and three people in it. Yeah, and there happens to be a quarry nearby, so he dumps it off. A, we, a review I heard earlier said the ocean, and I'm like, are there quarries around the oceans? <laughs> so. No, but it's Stephen King wrote this, and somewhere near any town in Maine is a quarry. Right. Where the kids <laughs> from it go swimming. I mean... It's just how it works. I guess, but... Yeah. So here's the problem I have with this whole sequence where he's describing his badass escapades is he goes from the meat guy to the murder guy. And now he's like some character straight out of, I know what you did last summer. Cause he's looking at Dexter like, and we're not going to talk about it. Right. You're going to play chess with me now. Right. Yeah. And Dexter's looking at him like, like I am not fucking with you. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. So the turns have tabled. All of a sudden he's just some kind of badass. Yeah. From three hours ago. <laughs> And now he's just like, I'm the senior pecker swinger in this place. Yeah. I don't, no, 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 no. I just don't, I don't. I, I, it's not that I dislike this episode. It's just, it's too much, too fast. There's not enough character development. There's and not I enough monster. don't care for the ending much either. I, that, you know, he's telling Dexter, he's like, I think somewhere at the end, he realized what was happening. Like, motherfucker, yes. Because as soon as you drop in the quarry, he fucking busts out like Houdini. Yeah. Yeah, he's out. And it's like, he's, is he coming back? <laughs> and that's it. That's just where we end. The other thing is, is that I feel like Father's Day, sort of a slasher-esque, um, story you know monster slasher zombie. type zombie story mm-hmm. um i feel like the ballad of jordy verrill sci-fi lonesome death is very sci-fi body horror yeah um something sort of cronenberg about it or maybe cronenberg's sort of stephen king and his who knows stephen king has done body horror before um but i feel like it's kind of an original story it feels it feels good if that sounds weird um uh, something to tide you over is is good. It's, I would say it's that's a, a pretty, psychological. It is, but it feels original. I mean, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure there's other stuff out there that's similar, but um, I don't immediately get the feeling I've, I've fucking seen this before. Um, the, but this one feels really derivative of uh, the one with Steve Buscemi in it and the Mummy. Buscemi. Buscemi. Which came after this film. I so realized it can't that. Be derivative but of I, that. I remember. I think I saw that one first. 
Uh-huh. This just feels... So you feel like you've seen it before. It feels like a retread, you know? Yeah. Like I've seen it before. It doesn't feel like an original story at, to me at all. Uh-huh. Um, and the fact that the characters are really underdeveloped and there are so many things that are overplayed, this episode just doesn't do it for me at all. How do you How do you feel about it? <laughs> I do, I do like it. There are, like I said, I love Billy. She, I, I live for Billy in this segment. Um, and I love Hal Holbrook's daydreaming. I love those little sequences where he shoots her in the head and everybody starts clap, like golf clapping for him. It's, those scenes are terrific. But like I said, when it's put in the middle of a film like this, it feels out of place for me. That's my problem. I think the difference between this one and some the one the the three that we've seen leading up to this is that in all three of the other ones, they had characters that you cared about, you know, or there was something in the material. They were good stories mm-hmm. um, that may have had a few bad elements in it. This is just a mediocre story with some good elements in it. Does Maybe. that make sense? It's sort of flipped because you've got Adrian Barbeau's performance, which is excellent, the and the flashback scenes, which are entertaining, and then the monster, which is nice. Um, what, did, what did the guys on Wham call it? It's one of the gorillas from Congo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I feel like the other ones had more redeeming qualities than this one did. Okay. They, they were good episodes with, with some, some yeah, stuff that maybe you'd change, but this one is just a, yeah. I just feel like this one could have been tightened up. It, it, it must have been a really good have. story. And I feel like they would need to change the arc of Hal Holbrook's character. I think instead of him being some kind of mastermind that's like, all of a sudden I'm going to kill my wife or whatever, if he had gotten her over there to help with something and it happened by accident, you know what I mean? Like he didn't intend to try to kill her. And it just happened, and he was like, I'm free. You know what I mean? Yeah. That would have been more in keeping with his character as we had seen it so far. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I just, I think it's a great story. I just think that they could have trimmed some fat. That's all. So, uh, finally, moving on to our last segment, They're Creeping Up on You. This has got to be the most disgusting, not just short film, segment, whatever. This has got to be up there with one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. I agree with that statement, and not just because of the the bugs that are in this film, um, because of the person that's in this film. Not E.G. Marshall as an individual, but the character that he plays. He's a disgusting human. Um, this is one that full-on... It, it's the bugs for me. It Jim. is the bugs. <laughs> and this, is, this one actually, I think, has something to say. Now, we did watch a review. I feel like they were reaching on some of the points they were trying to make, but I think some of the other ones were valid. Yes. Um, so this one does tackle issues of elitism, racism. That's really those two. Um, I would say there's still there's even some sexism thrown yeah, in there. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, it's classism. Definitely that. Definitely that. All the isms. All the isms. Except for the good isms. So I guess the quick version <laughs> is that there's this horrible. He's like a stockbroker or something like that. Business owner, something like that. This horrible guy that E.G. Marshall plays, Upton. Upton Pratt. Pratt. Um, and he's a terrible person. So they took over a company and the former owner killed himself and he's happy about it and tells the wife that he's horrible to the maintenance guy who just happens to be an African-American. Um, he tells him that service jobs suit you people. Yeah. That's what he tells the guy. Um, and of course the guy's kind of patronizing in return. Oh, but it's great. It's absolutely earned. Um, but, and then at the end he, he's got bugs that start popping up, roaches that start popping up around his perfectly white. It's very, Clinical. what did someone compare it to? Um, 2001 Space Odyssey, yeah. like white everything, futuristic, and I would say more it's computerized. American Psycho. It's it's that very pristine. Yeah, but yeah. literally, it's almost like um, 
uh, the cryo room or whatever in Alien. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, everything uh-huh. is 100% white. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Our as hospital is invade, not as clean becomes, as this apartment. <laughs> he becomes more and more unhinged. He's clearly like a germaphobe. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's a certain amount of agoraphobia in there because he has yes. plainly locked himself in there to separate himself from everyone else. To separate himself from everyone he considers to be beneath him, which is everyone and everything. His his bedroom is almost a panic room. He, he It's isolationist yeah yeah. Uh, he's separating himself from pests all of them and at one point that's what he says when he's looking out the window at the city Uh pests all of them you know this is a story that almost if it had come out three years ago might have been perfect yeah might have (laughs) been just saying (laughs) might have been because people would have watched it and been like that's how i need to quarantine right there (laughs) right but there are, I can count them on one hand, how many films have legitimately made me gag over the years. This is one of them. I. It's like this one, The Fly, Human Centipede. To, yeah. <laughs> I used to not be able to watch the end of this one. Yeah, exactly. It was so bad. Exactly. I've just now gotten where I can watch it because literally every time I would cover my eyes. Just yeah. for that that ending scene. So I guess to continue with sort of our really fast synopsis is that the, the bug problem keeps getting worse. More and more roaches show up. And eventually, he kind of locks himself in his panic room. It gets overrun. And then you see all the roaches begin to come out of his body, out of his mouth, out of his nose, out of his ears, out through his chest. Like, Mm -hmm. he's full of roaches. (laughs) Yeah. If you're thinking about it in terms of the special effects, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. They baby alien themselves right out of him. Yeah. But the thinking of it literally, okay, I'm I'm just going to say this. Everyone knows me as a lover of all things dark. I am kooky and spooky and every other thing. You're Wednesday Adams. But when it comes to roaches, I freak the fuck out. Roaches and rats and snakes, I cannot have any part of it. Yeah. Cannot do it. Yeah. And the roaches were the most expensive part of this entire film. I can imagine. And they lost some of them and kept finding them while they were tearing the sets down. Yeah, there are probably still descendants of these rogue roaches in in Pittsburgh to this day oh i don't doubt it <laughs> i don't doubt it and i think some of them made it to texas <laughs> just gonna throw that out and there. you know what apparently all these roaches like they were in pittsburgh you're telling me you can't find roaches in pittsburgh they had them all flown in from somewhere right they were from overseas madagascar <laughs> yeah but they weren't the hissing kind uh, it would have been even it would have been even creepier if they'd had hissing cockroaches but on to there. be fair that sheer volume was not just roaches it was also raisins which I yeah. don't know that I'm ever going to be able to eat a raisin correctly again. But there's just... Okay, I, I'm, I'm just going to get all the gross out before we move on, okay? The scene where... I, I can only describe it as some kind of bran cereal or something that he's grinding up in it, this food processor. It's, yeah, it's some kind of weird food. Yeah, it looks like bran cereal to me. And the idea of him just crunching up those roaches in there, it just, uh And then, you know, the constant squishing of them. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I want to gag now thinking yeah. about you, it. The other thing that I find interesting <laughs> is that he finds the roaches in his bran cereal and he doesn't get sick. He gets mad, but like, dude, you were just eating that. Yes. <laughs> it's so, so fucking nasty. I would, I'd have to get to a toilet. Immediately. Yeah. Because so, I'm, I'm going to hurl. I'm going to call some dinosaurs. That's what's happening. Yeah. So we live in a lake town. We are, all sides of this town are surrounded by a lake. We have all kinds of weird bugs that I didn't even know existed when we moved here. Least of which is the, 
I don't even know what word to call them. Indestructible water roach or water bug, whatever the fuck you want to call them. Those are those suckers where you're like, it, you see it and you're like, oh, I've got to go kill it. And then you go over and as soon as you go to squish it, it sprouts wings and starts flying, making your soul leave your body. <laughs> Terrifying fucking things. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Again, I mm, can't talk about it yeah, too there, long. <laughs> there are all kinds of weird books. So when we moved here, we moved from a town that does not have any major body of water anywhere close to it. Right. There's so many weird bugs around lakes. Yes. We have something here I call spider flies because it is a bug I've never it seen It looks before. like a spider with wings. It really does. And it's so fucking scary. They, yeah. And these weird ass like furry looking centipedes. Yes. And these weird, I think there's, I don't know what you call them. I always think that they're silverfish, maybe, but I'm not sure if that's what they are. I don't think they are. It's like this weird itty bitty centipede looking thing. It's It freaks me out. Yeah. But n no bugs we have ever seen until we moved here. And fucking wolf spiders. Yes. Jesus. <laughs> like we moved away from the tarantulas just so we could get to the wolf spiders? Yeah. God damn. Like, where, yo, they, where are the fire ants at here? And when they got their babies all over their backs, they're terrifying. Oh, my God. Don't, don't, don't. You're going to make me pee. I, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it's full of bugs, and we don't like those. So, like, Well, he doesn't care. He's the, he's the resident spider killer in this house. I, You know what? I, I give the spiders, except for the wolf spiders, the ones that make webs and catch the f spider fly things... <laughs> I leave them alone. Like, you're doing a good deed. Uh, yeah. They're like the Boy Scouts of the Insect Kingdom. So we, we had, uh, we're going to we're gonna veer off for two seconds. So just in, indulge me. We've already me. veered off. Indulge me this, okay? So it is not uncommon for us to have daddy long legs in our house. It's, they love our house for some reason. Because it's dark in here. And the other day, Isabel was in the living room and she starts freaking out. And before you start, you know, making your assumptions, we do have our pest control come out. We do. They come out. They take care of our things. I don't know what it is, um, but we end up with spiders. So Isabel's in the living room. She starts screaming and panicking that there's there's this big, big fucking spider in the living room. And so Aiden does his brotherly duty. He goes over and he's going to kill it. But after he's killed it, he tells me, oh God, like that's, she wasn't kidding. That's a pretty gnarly spider. And I start to freak out and I'm going, okay, what kind of spider was it? Oh my God. And then this realization hits me because with kids, you're going to have them leaving their clothes in the floor, leaving their shoes in the floor, towels, everything. And so I look at him and I'm like, please tell me it doesn't have a fiddle on its back. And he says, yes, it does. It didn't. So would you let me yeah, tell, tell your, my story? Yeah, tell your story. Um, so he says, yes, it does. And I'm panicking because my sister once got a brown recluse bite on her, the quad of her leg. And, you know, everybody who has any knowledge of brown recluses know that they cause necrosis in your flesh. So my sister had to go get all of that dug out of her leg and to this day has a dip in the top of her leg from that bite. So I don't fuck around with that. It, it freaks me out. So when Travis gets home, I'm like, I'm like, don't throw it away. Don't kill it. We're going to have dad look at it when he gets home. So Travis gets home from work and I'm like, I think there's a brown recluse here in the living room. And he goes over. He's like, that's not a brown recluse. That's a wolf spider. <laughs> and Aiden was like, oh, it's the size of a fucking silver dollar. He's like, <laughs> brown yeah. recluses aren't that big. He's like, I think that's Harold. And I look at Aiden and I'm like, what? And he goes, my bathroom spider. He's been living there for a while. And I noticed the other day that there was an exoskeleton in its web. So he's like, I just noticed it was gone. 
And I was like, so you saw an exoskeleton an exoskeleton? In your bathroom. What is this fucking Gundam wing? <laughs> They have guns and shit on it? You saw its skin, whatever, its shell. It molted. And you didn't think to say, hey, mom, dad, there's there's a spider, a rogue spider in our house looking to feast. Yeah, it's a trick. Get an axe. That's... Yes. <laughs> because we we tend to, like, I think Travis has talked about it on the show before, we tend to name things that hang out um, in our house or whatever. Travis had Pedro the shop lizard. Yeah, when I used to carpenter, I had a little... We call him Mountain Boomer Lizards, and he would hang out in the shop, and he got used to me enough. Like, you couldn't pick him up and pet him, but he would come and, like, sit next to the desk while I was at the desk doing some drafting and just sit there. And so I named him Pedro. <laughs> Pedro the Shop Lizard. So this is why Aiden named his bathroom spider Harold. <laughs> yeah. So in case you're wondering and you don't live in Texas, Texas is the Australia of the United States. Yes. Everything here wants to kill you. And eat you. Yes. Possibly fuck you. Maybe not necessarily in Maybe that order. all three and not in that order. <laughs> anyway, moving moving back on. So to let's the story. get back to the story. So there are some interesting things that I think have been addressed in this segment. Um, like you said, some of the stuff we heard, you know, could be reaching. But it's not lost on the viewer that the roaches are a stand-in for all of the nuisances of Pratt's life. I think the roaches are supposed to symbolize everyone other than himself. Yes. He sees everyone as a bug. It symbolizes people that are less fortunate, minorities, women, mm-hmm. um, anyone who's beneath him uh, socially or within the, the working hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says you have to watch it because they'll creep up on you. Yeah, yeah. And it he sees... That's it. He just sees... He sees himself as a god in the world of bugs i guess mm-hmm. and and you you can see that in the way he treats people yes uh, like the he he tells this this company or this guy i guess one of the people that works for him calls and he says uh you know the so-and-so killed himself after we bought out the company and he was like well i guess then we don't have to worry about a pension or something like that mm-hmm. like he doesn't care and then when the widow calls He's like, she says, you just kill everyone. And he was like, no, just the stupid people. Yes. So he's, he's insulting. Yeah. And then he has one, one of his, uh, one of his guys call him and he's saying, Hey, I've got roaches in my apartment. And he's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not available. I took my, vi- my family on vacation to Disneyland. And he's like, you, I don't care where you take them on vacation to. If you don't get this bug problem fixed, the next time you go to Disneyland, you can pay with your welfare check. Yeah. Like, he's horrible, but... He's Republican. My... <laughs> Sorry. Allegedly. <laughs> no. Um, I'm my, not editing that out. My thing is, were the bugs ever really there? I think that there is evidence to support that they weren't. Then what killed him? Anything could have killed him. He could have had a heart attack. He could have died in his sleep. Roaches came out of his body. Okay, but in Tales from the Hood, you told me that you thought that maybe Clarence killed all of them and not Morehouse. Correct. I I think there's... So you think that Clarence ripped the head off of a cop's shoulders through the roof of a squad car? No. Okay, then. Not necessarily. (laughs) I'm just saying that in that one... So specifically, to come back to Tales from the Hood, the sequence at the very end where Morehouse is killing the last cop... You've got a zombie hurling needles around in this alleyway full of the homeless. 
and none of them are reacting to what's happening. Okay. Like it's not happening uh-huh. at all. And there's and a that scene makes me think where maybe. Pratt squishes a roach. It shows him crush it. Right. Like you see the splat. And yet when he lifts his hand up. And there's nothing there's there. There's nothing there. Right. And whenever Mr. White, the, I guess the building super or maintenance guy or whatever who he is, um, shows up, there's the, the scene where he's kind of patronizing him. He's like, got bugs again, so huh, Mr. Pratt? The, like- thing I, the thing I like about that guy is that it's an African-American guy. And Pratt is, he's, he's the one that Pratt says, service jobs suit you people. Yeah. But clearly, Mr. White is sort of playing up a stereotype Mm-hmm. In the way he's talking to Pratt. Yes. Just to get under Pratt's skin. Yes. And I love it that he's sort of passive aggressive. And we're not, not going to mimic that. No, no, no. Here. I'm not going to do you it. You know, He just, like the passive aggressive way that he is antagonizing. Yeah. Like, Pratt. I don't think you're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That and whole think, thing. And, he's, and, and he, Pratt doesn't get it. Like, he, I don't think he understands that Mr. White is just fucking with fucking him. with him. Yeah. And yeah. But still, the way he, the way he's talking to him. Is the thing is, is that it seems like all of these things go in tandem with when the roaches start showing up, because when they say that the the guy killed himself was right about the same time he said because he stated he had the roaches start showing up an hour ago, and then it stated that the guy killed himself an hour ago, and then his wife just happens to call and say, "I hope you die in the most in the worst possible way," you know, and then it's just. As this is going, the roaches get worse and worse and worse. Right. So I have to wonder, even as bad as he is, the scum of the earth, is his conscience and guilt starting to finally chip away at him? I don't know. I don't see that necessarily from him. However, the way Mr. White says, you got bugs again, Mr. Pratt, makes me wonder, like, is this a complaint that he's had often and they yes. never find anything? Yes. Like it's some form of psychosis from him? Yes. And that's the why the reason Mr. White has such a patronizing tone. Like it's all in his head. Mhm. Um like maybe his paranoia for everything that is considered other finally gets to him. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. I just think there's an argument that could it, be made for it. I don't disagree with that. Uh but I would say that this is probably the most thinking piece. Yes. Of the five. Yes. It it definitely raises... You you got to talk about the things that we just talked about. This Did feels, it really happen? And yeah. This feels like it has more Romero's stamp on it to it me. It does. Because it, he's talking about social issues. Yes. And, and that sort of thing. It, this feels like a scene of dialogue that comes out of Day of the Dead with a very, very racist person on the... What do you call? SWAT team. To, that go in to bust up that apartment building. The guy's going off... And off and off about minorities. So for me, this feels the most Romero out of the entire. It it does. Film. It does feel very Romero, and a lot of the rest of them. And I don't know if King wrote it that way on purpose, um, but the rest of them were very clearly Stephen King. Yes. Um, like you could argue that to an extent, um, something to tide you over had some sort of Gerald's Game type overtones there a little bit. Mm. Well, wasn't she cheating? No. Was she not? No. Or were they were they married? I don't remember. They were married. I don't remember. But it seems like I th- King has written a lot of things that have similar tones to the ones that we've seen up to this, mm-hmm. and this is kind of a departure for it because I don't I can't think of a, a a book that I've read of King's, and I've read I've read quite a few. I haven't read them all, but I've read a lot um, that specifically addresses social issues or anything like that. So this is not necessarily. I'm not saying that he can't do it because he is the master and he can do anything. 
But yeah, this is a Romero story. I really, really feel like it is. Because this is almost a... Well, I mean, shit, Dawn of the Dead. Or mm-hmm. Night, Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... He was talking about a lot there. Uh, right. Classism, racism, Vietnam. He was covering a lot of ground with that one. And yeah, this is definitely... Feels like familiar territory. Okay, Jesus Christ, Travis. We've been talking about this movie for going up for two hours. <laughs> or over, over an hour and a half now. Um, so why don't we wrap this puppy up? Well, 45 minutes of that was talking about the crate. <laughs> Which is just totally I out of like place. I feel like we could have tightened that up a little bit. Trim the fat off of it. <laughs> so, so now we're back to the reach around. Yes. Now so, kiss you on the cheek or anything. So we cut to the next day and the garbage guys, one of them being played by Tom Savini, are dumping out the trash of Billy's Billy's home and come across the comic book. And they're going through, which I always laugh at. It's a comic book. What? A comic book? A comic book. Um, and they're going through and looking at all the little send outs you can get for little little toys and gags and yeah. shit like that. And they're talking about how the x-ray glasses don't really work. It's a gag. And then they're like, oh, they're voodoo doll. And he's like, oh, but somebody, this one's already been taken out. It's already out. been cut out. Yeah. And simultaneously in Billy's house, um, Stan is saying that he must have slept wrong because his neck is, is really hurting him. He's, stiff, he's got a stiff neck. And I'm sorry. I have been married for 20 years, and if Travis had slapped one of our children around and been that ugly and hateful, I wouldn't be calling him a poor baby the next morning. Poor baby, you want me to get you some med I've been like, that was a really fucked up thing you did last night, and I'm thinking about leaving. You better not ever touch one of my children again. You deserve a stiff neck. (laughs) Exactly. You deserve a lot worse than a stiff neck. But... So that that killed me. I, I think, you know, that's just telling of the time, you know, how how what women's kind of place was back then. Um, but nonetheless, we see Billy up in his room with aforementioned voodoo doll stabbing it repeatedly, saying, teach you to throw away my comic books. And Stan is standing up, grabbing the back of his neck, and he's also acting like he's having a heart attack, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean... Joe Hill's going ham with that needle on the voodoo doll. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dude. He's just like, die, motherfucker, die. He, he's got that same look that Lloyd Christmas had on his face when he was driving off from pouring the laxative <laughs> in Harry's drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's doing like the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> yeah. He's flying away. <laughs> yeah. And then we do the cut from live action Billy to comic Billy. And that's where our movie effectively ends. So, Travis, what do you think about Creepshow? Okay, so a couple of things that I didn't talk about because I was kind of saving it for the end. What do I think about Creepshow? I think everybody should watch this. Uh, I mean, I, I know we'll get to our MFK rating at the end, but I, man, if you haven't seen it, you gotta you gotta check it out because some of these stories are really powerful, and they they say you may have to watch it more than once. I, okay, maybe everyone's smarter than me; they may not have to watch it more than once. But they have more to say than they to me than they did on the first pass where I wasn't really watching it. So I feel like a lot of the stories were more impactful the second time around or third time around. However many times it was, <laughs> I watched it before I actually paid attention. Um, but one of the things that I really enjoyed, can I talk about that yet? Yeah. Two of the things that I really enjoyed about this film is how all the scenes were framed like a comic book frame. See, he asked my permission. That's the way it's supposed to go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Billy. <laughs> And I really enjoy how some of the transitions are. They're transitions out of a comic book. So they Uh stay true to the EC comics. 
and the lighting. I, they mix a lot of warm and cool lighting where you've got red on one side and blue on the other. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the scenes where it's all lit in one color, like it's all blue, it's all red, it's all whatever, um, just like a comic book. And I feel like it added to the overall feel. Mm -hmm. um, it's very dramatic. And it's most apparent, I think, in something to tide you over at the very end where you've got like the tie-dye background going on almost as uh, Richard's having his sort of meltdown when uh, Ted Danson and the wife show back up. Or that shot of Ted Danson under the water when you've got that tie-dye behind his head. Yeah, <laughs> as he's drowning. Yeah. And which that scene, they said they built a tank and actually stuck his head in it. So it was him full of water mm -hmm. or in a tank full of water with Tom Savini standing there with a sledgehammer just in case shit went wrong. Right, yeah. <laughs> It's Tom Savini, so do I do I trust him to save me? Yes. Do I trust him to kill me on yes. accident? Yes. Because I think he might just not give a fuck. He might be like, what does it look like when someone gets hit in the face with a sledgehammer through an aquarium? Um, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, it's good. It's just not something you see very often. Lighting is not something I normally pay attention to. Uh, but in this, it was so dramatic in the color palettes that they it's used so that vibrant. you couldn't help but notice it. Yeah. And the color palettes change depending on the intensity of the scene. Mm -hmm. So like at the party at the beginning of the crate, it's just very normal. Mm -hmm. But the color palettes get a little bit more extreme as the scenes get more extreme. Uh, same thing in something to tide you over. It's very normal. It's very daytime television up until the shit hits the fan. And that's right. when you really start getting the bright colors and the more comic book feel. The the color intensity goes along with the story intensity. I would say that that's even more prevalent in They're Creeping Up on You, where it's just very white and drowned out, devoid of all color, until the shit hits the fan. Yeah. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I think it added a lot to the story. I, I say it added a lot. It added a lot to the experience. Mm -hmm. The story is the story. But I think that that... And the, you talked about the musical sting when... Um, the zombie show Nathaniel up. comes out of the grave or mm -hmm. whatever the music we didn't talk about who scored it I don't know who scored it <laughs> I feel like they did a good job it's wonderful and it's a wonderful you get score. those musical stings that happen kind of in the right place and are they they do they happen in like your stereotypical places yeah but they're done well enough that it adds to the experience I'll tell you how effective it is the music from the opening credits, Isabel knows it by heart to know that if she hears it, she goes, nope, I'm out. Because she knows exactly what I'm watching and she is scared of Creepshow. Right. So if she hears that, la, 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 she leaves the room. She's like, nope, I'm not having it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I would say that is that is the sign of an effective score. Right. And I think that's, I think that's probably it for me is that I know that as we've covered a ton of movies now. And a lot of times I can't tell you that if it has a score or not. But when the music adds to the overall experience, I feel like it's effective. Well, the thing I think that is or what enhances that is that it's not just that very... Because a lot of musical scores now, and I no offense to anyone, I would say started with Scream, where all of the scores from that point on became very dramatic, or dramatic, became, I'm sorry, became very generic. They're all the same after that point, I feel like. But this one was all over the place where you had... You had moments that were whimsical and you had moments that were comedic and the music just added to that. It was telling of what you're supposed to be feeling and thinking during this scene. Well, that's that's exactly my point, I think, is 
you can have scores where the music kind of overpowers what's happening on screen or the music doesn't fit what's happening on screen and then you have the the score where it's the music's there and you hear it it doesn't necessarily stand out but it adds to the overall feel it's like the it's like a silent actor or something in the film where it adds to the overall experience it adds to whatever feeling you're supposed to be having or whatever they intended you to feel there if it's dread or fear or whatever and or, i feel like when laugh. you get it when you get a really effective score it complements what you're seeing on screen and i feel like it does in this one yeah because there were a lot of uh comedic notes in the score of Jordy Verrill's story you know it's 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 very it's a very funny score in that segment you know to a point right so so how do you feel about it oh again I don't have the history with this one that I do part two um so that taints my view just a little bit that being said, like you were saying, I feel like this movie, not not every segment, but I feel like for the most part, it had a lot to say. You know, I, I feel like it was a very ambitious undertaking for these guys who, again, just wanted to pay homage to something from their own youth and childhood. And I feel like they handled it with such grace and such care and attention to detail that you got that feeling again of just being a kid and seeing something you weren't supposed to see. Now, if you're talking about something like Tales from the Crypt, obviously that was amplified. You know, you got your profanity and you got your nudity and you got your over-the-top gore. But I would say with what they were given in the confines that they had to work in, I think they handled it brilliantly. I think it, there was something that made you feel like a kid again watching it, you know, well, even though you're not supposed to. <laughs> yeah, what we got was a, a solid collaboration between two titans of the horror. Three. Three. three titans of the horror genre, just in three different mediums. Yes, Yes, and for that reason alone, I would say if you're a fan of any of those three people's work, absolutely fucking watch it. Because I, I, I don't know that I can really add on any more to what Travis said, because I think he, he pretty much covered it all and handled it, talked about it well. So I'm not going to keep driving those points to the into the ground. But I with that being said, uh, moved on to Loved or Hated. What'd you love? What'd you hate? So what did I love? I love the entire of the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. <laughs> I do. I feel like it's really effective. And as, as, as hard as that, the last three minutes of that are for me to watch and for you to watch also, um, I don't know. It's such a swing emotionally mm -hmm. from where you start with meteor shit to the end. Mm -hmm. And they play it so well. Mm -hmm. Like they yank it right up from under you there at the end. And I really appreciate that. Um, I don't know. It's it's tough. I like it that it hit different, you know, the more you watch it. Because mm -hmm. this is one of those, and it's kind of a sleeper, in that really the more you watch it, the more you see. But that didn't happen a lot in the 80s. A lot of 80s horror movies were just take them at face value. Mm -hmm. But again, I feel like that comes back to having an effective collaboration between Romero and King, specifically. Mm -hmm. um, because Romero always has something to say. And King has plenty to say. I don't know if you've ever seen him on Twitter, but he's got some shit to say. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think, like like you're saying, Romero has something to say. And King has the absolute talent of trying to provoke a mood. You know, whether that is what it's like to be a youth. You know, he tells the story of children so well that even though this is a story full of adults, 
he makes you have that feeling of being a kid again. So even if we're not dealing with children, we are the children. Like, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So Okay. So, quote, kill, and scene. Go. Um, favorite quote, meteor shit. <laughs> favorite kill is from Father's Day. The spinning the head around backwards. Mm-hmm. Scene, kind of dark. It's again from the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill is when he, when he, what is he? I forget exactly how he said it. He's like, when I, when, as soon as I touched it, I was gone. Like I got the meteor on me and I was such, gone. It's such a powerful moment. Yeah. From someone who's not an actor. Yeah. I'm, I'm gone already, daddy. Yeah. 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 It's sad. But how about you? Uh, quote, also meteor shit. <laughs> As a matter of fact, in Creepshow 2, my favorite quote from that is also from Stephen King. So, but you know, for another day. We'll get to that one. Um, Kill is also going to be the next snap. I just, I don't think there's any topping that. Aren't our mamas the same? <laughs> No, they're not, thankfully. Not even close. <laughs> and favorite scene is probably going to be, God, I just had it in my fucking head and I lost it. Oh, oh, probably this is going to be extremely painful. I just, I love that drag of the thumb against the meat cleaver and Stephen King sitting in the background just looking at him like, oh my God. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me, that scene. Like, why would a doctor have a meat cleaver and why was it wet? <laughs> Maybe I don't know what the autoclave does. I don't I don't deal with autoclaves at work. Pretty sure it uses heat, <laughs> but either way. Anyway, okay, now marry fuck or kill. Creep show. I think I'd marry this one. Okay. Wow. That's only like the second one since you invented that radio rating system. Did have you I thought that was your first one. I think it's maybe the second one. Wow. But that's it, yeah. We are going to be opposite. Finally, this is going to be one of my very few fucks. You're just going to booty call it? It's a frequent fuck. I'm yeah. going to have it on dial dick but it's it's not... You're way too comfortable with that terminology. It makes it's, me nervous. It's a Sex and the City quote. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, or actually, it's dial a fuck. It, anyway, um... It's not one that's in my regular, regular rotation. I do watch it more often than I do some other films, but it's not one that I feel like I can never go the rest of my life without watching this movie again. So for that, it's just going going to be a fuck for me. See, I think this is one that I'm going to be down to watch it anytime you bring it up. Wow. Out of, for one fucking segment. Pretty much. That is insane Like, honestly, we could skip the whole rest of the movie and just watch that one. You want a full-length feature of this segment? <laughs> I, yeah, they could make a movie out of that. Like a whole movie, I think. Yeah, wow. maybe not. But they definitely could have dedicated, they could have taken all the time, the extra time that they dedicated to um, the crate, put it into the lonesome death of Jordy Farrell. Wow. And I can always watch Leslie Nielsen play that character. So I guess you need to look up Weeds then. I probably do. Yeah. Probably do. Okay. So, final thoughts? <sighs> Watch this movie. Watch it. Watch it. Don't don't walk, run. Yeah, that, that's me too. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you probably... I don't know. Everyone out there that's listening to this is probably smarter than me. I, but I would still say watch it twice because I feel like you get you get else, more out of it every time you watch it. To find where the fuck the ashtray is in every find segment. those fucking ashtrays because we can't find them all. So it's it's right up front in uh, Father's Day. 
Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, it's sitting on a table. I don't remember seeing it in Something to Tide You Over, but I think it was there. I think it was in Ted Danson's apartment. There was a scene where somebody was washing their hands, and it was right there, like as a soap dish I want to say it was in Ted Danson's apartment. But I can't remember which one it was. I don't know where the fuck it was in the crate. Uh Uh-uh. And I don't remember ever seeing it in... uh, They're creeping up on you? They're creeping up on you. Because in that one, everything in there was white. I feel like it would have stood out. But they say that it was in every single short. Right. Yeah. Supposedly it's in the TV show too, but oh, I yeah? I have not tried to watch the TV show yet. It's a yet. badass ashtray. I kind of want it just to have it. <laughs> I'm sure there's a replica floating around there somewhere. I bet there is. <laughs> All right. So once again, would like to say thank you to Renee for being the most badass boss babe bitch best friend I could ever have that we could ever have. Um, we hope that we didn't ramble on too long or <laughs> digress too much. Um, but we love you so, so much. And we hope that you enjoyed this. And we just want to say thank you for being our friend. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back and again. back again. <laughs> I thought I was thinking that too. Like, are we, are we going to sing it? She really is a pal and a confidant. Is this a musical? <laughs> this is like that episode of Buffy. Once more with feeling. <laughs> Jesus, I just got canceled. And for... if you threw a party. No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> He's looking at me like, what the fuck did That's you just do? <laughs> too far. I'm going to need you to dial it down a lot. Anyway. Um, so, as for the future of the show, now that Easter eggs are out of the way, um, I think, I'm ready. I think that we are going to. Give it to me, baby. <laughs> uh huh. Uh-huh. Um,. <laughs> I think we are going to tackle, and this is a this is going to be an well, it's not a new thing we're doing, but it's going to be and have a new title. We're going to start having friend requests, and we have had two requests in the last couple of months, and so we will be tackling those. And the first one up to bat is from our best friend Megan, who, when we got to meet for the first time at Texas Frightmare Weekend of this year requested that we cover killer clowns from outer space which is also going to make lala happy that's so and jp that was totally unfair too what because i kind of put her on the spot with that yeah you did because we're sitting there eating dinner and i think you had had you gotten up to go to the bathroom and i'm like all right so what are we doing next and she was like ah uh, (laughs) (laughs) why are you asking me this question Um, but yeah, killer clowns. But that, yeah, that'll make Lala happy. And I'm always all about and making, JP. I'm all about making Lala and JP happy. Yes. yes. So, and Megan. So, and yeah. Megan. So we're going to be uh, killing three birds with one stone on this one. Let's not kill them. No. We no. like them and we want to keep them. Yes. <laughs> we're kind of like Myra from Animaniacs. We're going to love them and squeeze them and whatever. <laughs> and then our next request is from Lala and we will be covering brain damage. And this is one I am so fucking excited to do because, again, it looks like schlock on the surface, but upon deeper inspection, I think it has a little bit more to say. So I'm excited Uh, to cover it. You know what? I watched... I slept through it. I'm not even going to (laughs) lie. You slept through the last half of it. I did. So whatever it has to say must have been in the last (laughs) half. It's a a subject close to home for people close to me. So, yeah, I got something out of it. I'm going to give it a fair shake and stay awake for the whole fucking thing. (laughs) And then, um, not to bring down the room or anything, but I think... For the month of September, we're going to do what I'm going to call hashtag for London. And we are going to cover three 
I want to say four because we got to squeeze Pillow Talk in at some point. Um, going to do three films that she liked. And I won't give those away right now. But that yes, that is also on the docket for September. So look forward to all of that stuff. And I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I, I feel a batch recording coming on. Awesome. I love those. So anyway, I'm Ashley. And I'm Travis. Thank you guys for listening to Dead and Married. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Dead and Married. A special thank you to William Rush, Gary Horton, Carissa, Kent Morton, Kate Lamp, Lala Thomas, and Podmortem for being our patrons. If you would like to support our channel, head over to patreon.com slash deadandmarried to find out how. We would also like to thank Alana Miller for composing Dead and Married's theme. You can find Alana's channel, Alana Llama, on YouTube. And last but not least, you can find us on X and Instagram at SpookyMom83 and Travis L.A as well as our official pages. Thank you again, everyone, for your support.